I'm Jessica Livingston, and Carolyn Levy and I are the Social Radars. In this podcast, we talk to some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley about how they did it. Carolyn and I have been working together to help thousands of startups at Y Combinator for almost 20 years. Come be a fly on the wall as we talk to founders and learn their true stories. So today we are here with Patrick and John Collison, the co-founders of Stripe. I am so excited to have you guys on. Welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, and uh, Jessica, I think you have the the best background of any podcast that I've seen. Thank you. It's my home office. Gary saw it, and I think he said he said it was epic. We're really excited to have you on the show today, you guys. And Carolyn was actually asking before we got started how we first met you guys. And I'm going to go way back, and I'm actually going to ask Patrick. Were we? I think Paul and I were the first people you met in the startup world, um, and that was because, as a teenager, you were a Lisp programmer and you were emailing Paul with questions. I'm going to have you tell the story, but the rough story is you were emailing Paul with questions, and he didn't even realize you were a kid. Your questions were so sophisticated that it's literally、uh, the New Yorker cartoon on the internet. Nobody knows you're a dog, exactly, <laughs> or a teenager in Ireland. They didn't know he was a teenager in Ireland. Can you take me back to when you first met Paul or connected with Paul? Yeah, so I guess so. I've been emailing Paul for for some period of time. I guess、um, I learned Lisp when I was thirteen or fourteen,、uh, and、um, and then when I was at some point, I guess I was maybe sixteen.、Uh, I was I was visiting the U.S.、Um, for the、uh, for the first time. Maybe the second time, whatever. Anyway, but one of my first times in the U.S. Certainly, my first time in Boston. And so I emailed Paul saying that I'd be in Boston, would love to meet him if possible, and he agreed.、Uh, and so we、um, we scheduled a meeting at Algiers on Brattle Street. Yeah. And he showed up at like maybe he agreed to meet at two o'clock or something like that. And he showed up at two o'clock and he ran in. He was kind of you know a bit. Ruffled and disheveled, and I don't know. See, something was was clearly going on. He said, "Patrick, I'm so sorry, but something's come up. Can you wait here, and I'll come back?"、Uh, What was so, it? I've been there just quietly reading my book, and you know, for me, this was a big deal. I you know, finally get to meet Paul, so I said, you know, "Sure." Uh, and uh, I, I have no idea. I never learned what it was, but、uh, so he ran out. And then he appeared again. Maybe it was two hours later,、uh, and, I, and I had a good book, so it was totally fine. Algiers <laughs> is not a bad place to read. And so he came back, and then you know, we had a really good conversation for、um, for you know two hours or something. How old were you again? Tell me 16, roughly. Sixteen. Sixteen. So it was nineteen, or sorry, it was two thousand three or something. Oh、uh, God,、uh, it would have been two thousand five. Two thousand five. Okay,、yeah. you're sixteen、um, years old. You met at the Algiers. You had coffee and、yeah. talked about Lisp and stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe my memory is wrong. Maybe it was two thousand six. I'm pretty sure it was oh five. Anyway, we we chat for two hours, and then I think as he felt guilty about、uh, keeping you know me waiting for so long, uh, he uh, he said, "Well, punch, just come back for dinner."、Uh, and I'd been telling you know I was in secondary school, you know, high school in Ireland at the time, and I was telling <laughs> him about trying to get to 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 college in the U.S. and so on, and so. He he、um, he invited me back for dinner, and 
Uh, and he invited RTM, he invited Robert Morris to like tell me about how to apply to MIT and uh, and all the rest. And so okay. that's when I met you for the first time when I was this you know strange teenager being you know hauled to dinner at your house, uh, you know, with, yes. uh, with no oh. You stayed for dinner and RTM was there. And were other people there? I think Aaron Swartz was there. Uh, and I remember that because he showed me, or we were talking about Google Maps, which I guess had launched not that long before. And I had a 17-inch PowerBook. And Aaron called my 17-inch PowerBook the SUV of laptops, which, you know, especially being Irish, you know, I took, Savage. took brave offense at. <laughs> So that had to be 2005 then if Aaron Swartz was there, because as we've mentioned in the Reddit episode, Aaron was in the very first batch. Right, right. Okay, yeah. Because I remember meeting you in Paul's kitchen, so I must have come home from YC or something and been like, oh, hey, who are you? And and then you were introduced. Now, were you visiting to apply specifically to MIT? Because I know you went there. I had two years left in high school, um, okay. Oregon, secondary. And I'd somehow kind of gotten into my head that, well, maybe if I applied to, so you couldn't apply to university in Ireland early, you sort of had to finish all the things on the normal schedule, but American colleges didn't seem to care as much. And uh, maybe they're also like confused by the international system. They don't even you know, know whether you'd finished or not. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe I can go to college sooner if I applied to college in the US. Uh, and, and so, yes, yeah, so I was coming out to visit a couple of schools uh, as part of this, as part of this scheme. Uh, to uh, to compress it's real galaxy brain way to simplify matters like oh don't worry <laughs> i've simplified it down <laughs> why so, were you in such a rush though why did you want to start university early i can't remember to be honest i mean i think it, it seemed better uh I think there were songs in hamilton about this <laughs> awesome. so you can't remember why you wanted to fast forward through secondary school and go to university early but that's what you were doing Okay, so that's where we met. John, I don't remember when I first met you. Do you remember? Patrick will have to help me reconstruct. I don't think we ever met during the automatic days, actually. Is that right, Patrick? And so it would have been during the Stripe days. I remember we came over to your kitchen in Palo Alto. It's always the kitchen for some reason. I remember that meeting. I don't know if the first meeting or not, but I remember it because... When Paul saw you again, I don't think it was for the first time, but um, but well, you you can describe that interaction. Uh, yeah, I, I, it must have been our first time meeting because Paul looked at me and said, "Wow, you have such criminal eyebrows." Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was Paul's first impression. I think my eyebrows are pretty normal. Have you been obsessed honestly. with your eyebrows ever since, though? <laughs> Exactly. And that's oh that started my long battle with eyebrow insecurity. Oh, no, he's <laughs> so bad. He always, these days. always uh, says these things that he notices. He observes everything, but then actually says it. So, you, so your criminal eyebrows, notwithstanding, I remember the story was that you came over to the U.S. like your mother dropped you off at the airport as an unaccompanied minor. And you dressed wearing like a striped T-shirt, shorts and knee socks pulled up. So you looked super young. What was the story behind that? Yeah, I think that's Paul um, uh, again, maybe uh, starting to uh, uh, embellish slightly. No, I, I think the um, so the, again, this is all going back to ancient history, Octomatic days where, well, I don't yeah. know, sh should we context set Octomatic for the listeners? Well, We're assuming a lot of knowledge This is what I'm leading here. up to. We're going to get in 
we're we're doing the automatic. So, but I just wanted to know if that was the first time we met you when you came as an unaccompanied minor. I see. Yes, it's it's your um it's your uh, podcast. I should not try to be uh, taking over the flow. But uh, basically, during the automatic days, I kind of briefly dropped out is too strong a word. Uh, took some time off uh, secondary school. Patrick and I had an extremely um understanding uh, principal, really fabulous guy who's sadly since passed away, but he allowed me to kind of take six months off secondary school. And so I came out to the US for the uh, duration of that. And uh, I guess I was 16 at the time. So I was traveling as, as an unaccompanied um, minor. Starting a startup, traveling as an unaccompanied minor. So is the striped shirt and knee socks not true? I, I think that's, I mean, I dressed as a 16 year old would have dressed, which is, you know, probably a t shirt and shorts. Um, so the knee controversial. I don't, it would, it would, it would no, have been the, difficult for it to have been a striped t shirt given the chronology here. <laughs> exactly. But um, <laughs> no, the, I, I think the knee socks is Paul's uh, embellishment. Uh, I did not need any help looking young at the time, I'll tell you that. <laughs> okay. So you didn't have gray hair back then, not till you were uh, 18. I started going gray fairly young. But, Let's uh, stop exactly, triggering <laughs> insecurities here okay. for John. <laughs> Okay. Sorry, poor John. Okay. So I do want to talk Octomatic. So what I'm going to explain for the listeners is that in winter 2007, we funded a company called Bozo, spelt B-O-S-O. Boso. Um, Boso. Founded by I was Boso. corrected so many. Didn't they call it Bozo? And we're like, that's the clown guys. And they're English and they had no idea what we were talking about. I just... Uh... Was it pronounced Harsh Boso? Had to correct me so many well, times. <laughs> however, it was pronounced. It was B O S O, and it was founded by two cousins, Harge and Cole Tagar. Who and Harge is a partner at YC, and he was actually one of the first people Y Combinator ever hired. But we funded them in 2007. How did you guys connect? What happened? So we started a company called Shuppa in. I mean, the thing we started a company sounds very self-aggrandizing. We, you know, stopped attending our, you know, formal education and uh, started sort of writing writing code all day in early. I guess not that it really matters, but I guess yeah, it must have been the beginning of two thousand and seven. Uh, we got a tiny little office in Ireland, and yes, this is the period John was referencing where he stopped going to school. And Shopa was the Irish for shop. And the idea was to build a, basically a better version of eBay. Uh, I, I think this is an idea that a lot of teenagers or young people are drawn to, where uh, it's obvious that, well, you, you're very, you don't have a whole lot of money. And so used items and secondhand goods and all the rest hold a lot of appeal. And you know, your two main options are Craigslist and, uh, and eBay. And you know, neither of them are that good. Both feel really stuck in the 90s. They haven't really changed since then. And so you know, do a better version of that. Seems like a, a pretty obvious thing. And so, um, so yes, Shepa was basically our kind of independently derived or, or conceived version of Boso. And uh, you know, this is one of the classic attractors in the startup space. And so anyway, we started working on that. We applied to YC, I guess it must have been for the summer 07 batch. And Paul respondent said, hey, you should talk to these, you know, Harjan Kulvier guys. Uh, and so I went to London to meet with them and we kind of hit it off and saw the same logic uh, that, that I guess you guys did, where it was mm -hmm. essentially the same idea. Uh, and they were, you know, slightly further ahead. And, um, and, and yeah, there was this kind of complementarity where, you know, we were um, sort of little code gremlins uh, and they were these like charismatic, you know, Oxford graduates. <laughs> so we decided to work together. Okay. And you, 
were you in Canada or something? Or where were you guys working? And because I know you got acquired a few years the next year by Live Current, but where were you guys working? Was it distributed or were you all working together? It's complicated. Like, like a lot of early stage startups, I guess, you know, it's complicated. And I don't know the details are that interesting, but basically we spent the next summer in San Francisco where I guess they were in the process of moving to. And, uh, and I mentioned that in part because, you know, it, it, it yielded some of these formative or, or sort of memorable, vivid experiences, uh, like uh, the early Y-scraper. Uh, and so oh uh, I remember we, 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 we stayed with them um, for the first couple of days. We, were, uh, we stayed with, uh, with Robbie Walker. Uh, oh who, yeah. Uh, who started, um, started, well, I guess first it was Zenter, the presentation company yeah, and then Greplin with Daniel Gross yeah, uh, and, uh, and who now runs Siri at Apple. Yes. Uh, so we, we, we crashed in his couch. Uh, and I remember, you know, like the Weebly guys were there and, you know, a, a whole, whole, and Kyle Vogt, I think was there. I mean, oh, oh yeah. Justin, the the Justin TV crew nearly got Justin, of course, was doing yeah. Justin Dropbox. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, Everyone um, was there. In fact, did yeah. Justin get evicted for all the Justin.tv antics? I think that's right. It sounds right, yeah. at least. Um, so, uh, so anyway, we, we, we were in kind of San Francisco that summer. Uh, it was, um, you know, this, this is our, you know, summer of 68 or, or whatever uh, with, with, with all these uh, personalities and characters. Um, and then because of sort of the difficulties getting a U.S. visa, uh, we ended up spending a bunch of time in Canada, uh, okay. um, in Vancouver. Where Colvere was from, I think. Colvere exactly. lived there. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also we used small talk for automatic, which is, you know, we, 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 we could, um, talk. We, we could do a whole podcast. That's on, a harken on, back to the Trevor <laughs> We could do thing. a whole podcast on, on, on what, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, indeed. So there were like three small talk programmers in the world, um, uh, Trevor, uh, you know, <laughs> me, uh, and, and this guy, Avi Bryant, uh, who, uh, who was also based in Vancouver. And, and so there was also a, a, kind of a linguistic reason uh, to uh, to spend time there, and so we actually sh- we sh- uh, I mean okay a-, a serious point perhaps apart from kind of you know random reminiscences is we shared an office with with uh, with Avi Bryant and and his company was called Dabble DB yeah um, in Vancouver and there was a third I don't know project sharing that office it was this guy Graydon Hoare who went on to start or who at the time was creating Rust mm-hmm. the programming language which oh. is maybe the most successful programming language that's been started in the last decade. And so, you know, w- one of the strange Patrick, learnings of my adult... Don't tell PG. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Um, one of the... <laughs> one of these strange... so offensive. Uh, <laughs> He's cutting you back for the <laughs> eyebrow comments. <laughs> but one of the... Um, one of the strange, I guess, experiences of kind of becoming an adult is, you know when we were literally these kids, these t- teenagers just kind of running around and the, the kind of the other people we, you know, were encountering were people like Robbie and Kyle and Emmett and Justin and Avi and Graydon and so on. They were just kind of random people working on their random projects. And now so many of these projects and, you know, indeed people have become so yeah. illustrious uh, and so many of these things have done so well. And it, it seems sort of, it's kind of hard to understand, like it seems statistically improbable that somehow they would all have, not literally all, of course, but that so many of them would have yeah, become like that, that the set of things that have worked out really well would 
kind of ex-post would overlap so much with the kind of random people we knew 15 years ago. And yeah. I've often wondered sort of why that's true. And maybe just, it's partly a testament yeah. to San Francisco and the sort of clustering yeah. there and, I don't know, the density of friend networks or something, but just that's been a very striking phenomenon. Well, is there, yeah. is, is there also something, I don't know, kind of like Burning Man, you know, it was, it was better, you know, the first year I went, uh, you know, it was better back in the day uh, where it does seem like those early YC batches, the like the even the ones kind of before we were in the 2007, 2008 batches, there was some really magic talent density going on there. It was, it was quite striking. That's, yeah. It was people who just really wanted to start startups and weren't just doing it for credentials, you know, to be fashionable. Exactly. Maybe quite helpfully, YC was not as cool back then as it is now. Oh, for sure we weren't as cool. And we drew only like people who honestly wanted to do this. Do you think that that's kind of helpful in the sense that like, if you could actually twist the YC cool meter and make it less cool, do you think that would be helpful because you would kind of get better self-selection uh, in terms of people who really want to do this for kind of intrinsic reasons as opposed to for the status and stature? Yeah. Hmm. Patrick, that's a fascinating question. We, about. we can both answer well, it. What I, do you I think, think We've C. been Levy? talking about this for years. Like we worry about like, this is a credential for somebody. It's something that they just want to put on their resume and they're absolutely not that serious about being nerds and really wanting to start a startup. And I don't know that we have great ideas for how to combat it. And I think we we take a little bit of solace helping people start startups, even if they're not exactly the type of people we're talking about from the early days, is still a net good. When the movie The Social Network came out, honestly, there was like a change that startups became more mainstream and cooler and parents, I mean, not your parents, because they already <laughs> were supporting you doing these things. But a lot of parents thought, oh, okay, they're starting a startup. So it's good and bad. But I would love to dial back the the, I mean, I would hate to dial back the YC cool meter because it stunk. You know, I'd only want it. I only the cool effect, you know, or in the early days, like only people who were serious yeah. about startups were doing it. No one want because now we offer a lot more money too. I mean, back then it was like six thousand dollars a founder. It was. Comical. I think in our day it was fifteen thousand. Well, that's because there yeah. were two of you. All right, so, yeah. sorry, six thousand per founder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, that's yeah. how math works. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but actually, I wanted to ask the whole Octomatic thing. I think, you know, in addition to exposing you to a lot of this exciting stuff happening in San Francisco and other startups and founders, I think it also introduced you to what a startup was like and probably gave you a lot of great hands-on information. But it also, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you were working on payments at Octomatic, right? So clearly. That must have been helpful to see how painful it was. Yeah, there's multiple things. You know the way people making something talk about build one to throw away? Uh, I do think all startups benefit from kind of building one to throw away. I actually, someone recently told me about an investor who extremely strictly, as a rule, only bets on, you know, only invests in second time founders, but, you know, will just not even take an introduction to a first time founder. I thought it was interesting where maybe a lot of people have this intuition that it's helpful to have some experience under your belt, especially if you're starting another company in the same space. But I've never, I've never heard of anyone who has kind of so high conviction on that thesis that they will actually kind of throw away an intro to a first time founder. So I thought that was interesting. And I think we certainly benefited from there's a certain like there's certain advice we didn't build one to throw it away we worked you know as hard as we could <laughs> and, and you sold it for five million bucks right yeah which look at, the, at the time obviously was a life-changing amount of money for us yeah yes uh, but so there's definitely 
that value uh, that, that comes from kind of having the experience. But then as you, uh, as you referenced as well, payments was interesting because everyone at the time thought it was a solved problem and a crowded space, which are actually kind of slightly at odds with each other as reasons to not do it. <laughs> right. But, you know, if you were to ask an investor, it didn't kind of strike them as, as the obvious good place to do it. And then also, I mean, there's all these kind of funny notions about it. Solved problem, crowded space, terrible business, you know, commodity business, everything like that. So there are all these reasons that people, if they were kind of in a... Way, way too regulated, such that it's not even possible right. to build a business there. Exactly. And so, so if people were like a business plan style, trying to find a startup idea, they wouldn't have arrived at this. And I think just having the hands-on experience, both at Octomatic and elsewhere, w- was very valuable. Where certainly in you know Octomatic, you have this software product that users like and they want to pay for. And you know you think the hard part is building a software product that users like and is hard uh, and you know are willing to pay for. That actually was very tractable. Maybe thanks to you know using Smalltalk or something. Uh, and. Uh, then the hard part was actually just kind of collecting money for it. But there was even other examples uh, from, you know, Patrick, do you remember talking to um, uh, Spez from Reddit at the time and their plan for monetizing Reddit back in 2007 is doing web payments was going to be way too hard. So they were just going to build an iPhone app and put it in the iPhone app store and then sell it in the iPhone app store. But like the fact that easier than adding payments to the Reddit website was build a whole iOS app and put it in the iPhone app store and then have that cost $2.99 or something. The fact that that was the easiest plan they could think of for monetization suggests, oh my God, something is totally backwards and messed up in the state of payments. And they hired Ross Boucher, the founder of, uh, of 280 North. Ross uh, Boucher! Yes. I love him! Yeah, okay. They hired Ross to build that iPhone app. And I remember running into Ross in like Koopa Cafe, you know, what are you doing? Uh, and, uh, and he sort of described the story. And Ross subsequently went on to become Stripe's third, fifth, fifth, fifth or sixth or something employee. Uh, and, uh, and so kind of, you know, bringing this dynamic and this, uh, this story full circle. And That's the other right. Right. And the other yeah. experience we had that sort of really pushed in this direction is we ourselves built some iPhone apps to store uh, a copy of Wikipedia on the iPhone uh, as like a, this was a random side project after Octomatic. And that project made more revenue than Octomatic ever did. And, you know, the, the, and it, you know, it wasn't a huge amount, but, you know, it was again, as, as kind of as college age students, uh, it, uh, it was, it was a big deal for us. And we were kind of reflecting on, well, like why? And, and a lot of the reason was, well, it was so easy to monetize mm-hmm. iPhone apps uh, and so hard to do this on the web. And so when we saw kind of, you know, when, or when we encountered this problem ourselves and noticed this dynamic and then saw it sort of so prevalently rooted in this startup milieu around us, it was just very thought provoking. That is one of my questions. When was Wikipedia app? Check. Okay. <laughs> well, and you made a lot of money off of that, though. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> a lot of money for college students. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. college yeah. students. Uh, no, no, no. We made enough to pay for college. Yeah. I, uh, I have to pitch my uh, my startup idea, Patrick. I mentioned this; you didn't uh, react to it, but offline LLM because uh, you know basically all these kind of GPT four LLM style things they are actually small enough that you could fit one on an iPhone, and none of the big guys will ever go do this as a feature because it's a niche. But what we saw with offline Wikipedia is like, why would you want to browse Wikipedia offline? It's like, well, there's just like a lot of cases where you know you're on the like there's a, a lot of small niche cases where you do actually want that. And so what we found was that it was a nice profitable niche. I think similarly, some startup founder should go build an offline LLM 
iPhone app where you can, uh, you know, ask GPT-4 or the equivalent questions without cell service. And I think it'll end up a super profitable, tiny little niche. I think it's an amazing idea. All right, idea. you heard it here first. An mm. RFP for offline, uh, offline LLMs from... <laughs> By the way, just for our listeners, Spez of Reddit is Steve Huffman, who we had interviewed before. They don't know his hand. Some and and, and also the first YC batch. Yes, also in the first YC batch. All right, so you did this Wikipedia app. I want to talk about how slash dev slash payments, the first name of Stripe, came to be. Is it not? Sorry, just before we get there, is it not? Yeah. Does it not puzzle you that like I guess Twitch and Reddit are two of the top ten? I don't know if it's top ten, but close to it, web properties in the world, and that. Both of those came out of the first YC batch uh, of how many founders? And Sam Altman was in that batch. Right. And so how many founders? Oh, gosh. There were only 20-something. There were only eight startups and 20-something founders. Eight startups and two uh, go on to be uh, top, uh, top, I think, 10 or you know, close to it, certainly, internet properties. Like, isn't that yeah, this is stuff from conspiracy theories. Mind-blowing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the Illuminati. <laughs> it is mind-blowing, but uh, the only way I can explain it is that, you know, we started Y Combinator because we thought there was this huge need to make starting startups easier for younger people. And I think there was a huge pent-up demand for younger, especially programmers, to start their own companies. And for people who, again, were diehard, you only heard of Y Combinator if you read Slashdot or you followed Paul Graham's essays, which were mostly about <laughs> Lisp, right? So you were a hard How did programmer. he distribute the essays in those days before Twitter? Like, what, what, like he wrote an essay and that, like, did he go to the window in Cambridge and kind of yell out like a town crier that there was a new essay? It was like, how did anyone no, find out about the essays? Would he would have. <laughs> don't, don't say that as if he wouldn't Slashdot. have. Slashdot. Yeah, Slashdot is how I found them. Yeah, it was Slashdot and then then Reddit. So I think there was like a hardcore group of programmers who really wanted to start startups. And so that's the only explanation I could think of was why two have done so well. It is outrageous, though. Do you think there's a similar... So like there was a clear talent allocation mismatch back then where talented programmers who were young didn't realize that they could start startups. And so they were going off to work for kind of office space style, big companies, as opposed to just going and starting their own company. Absolutely. Now, presumably that talent misallocation yeah. has kind of closed where if you're in college, like there's entrepreneurship societies and yeah. there's other people starting, you know, uh, companies. And so like that is not as big a misallocation right now. Right. Are there any other places where you see kind of people going into the wrong domains or kind of a major talent misallocation? You're not oh, supposed God, to ask John. us questions, Do John. I see any other talent <laughs> misallocations? Taking over their podcast. Maybe universities. There's something mm. very broken with universities. Oh, you're on the Peter Thiel wagon yeah. of... No, I am. Well, I, you know, I'm not, not... Don't say I'm on the Peter Thiel wagon, but I am on my own wagon of, like, there's something broke. Like, there's something that could be really fixed mm. with a different type I of university. I don't know what the solution is, but that, that feels like... What did you call it? Mismatched talent? allocations this is not supposed to be so highbrow john is this the social radar yeah, the word social is in here for a reason <laughs> all right back to the story back to the origins of stripe back when it was called 
slash dev slash payments. What happened? Because John, you went back to university or you went to Harvard, John, didn't after Octomath. Yeah, right? I, I went back to, um, well, first secondary school. Uh, and then, uh, and so Patrick was left working for the, uh, the acquirer of Octomatic, whereas I managed to wriggle out of that duty, uh, due to school. Uh, and then, uh, went to, uh, to university. You're a note from the teacher. Gap <laughs> exactly. year yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. School gap year <laughs> exactly. over. John cannot work for your company. He's a very naughty boy. Um, but, uh, so yeah, back to school and then, uh, went to college. And the funny thing is when I was going to college, you have to remember that Patrick had already dropped out of MIT once at that point uh, for Octomatic. You know, he has he since went on to drop out again, uh, and uh, he's kind of got the honor of multiple. You know, some people have multiple degrees. Patrick has multiple dropping outs. Um, and so, as I was going to uh, to university, our mum knew that I was uh, in a high risk population. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, where there was definitely some yeah. uh, some family history of uh, of a condition here. And so, uh, she said to me at the time, it's like, okay, but if you're going to college, you like have to go for the four years, you know, you gotta actually go do this as opposed to fiddle sticksing around. Follow the wayward ways of your own. Exactly. And so, and, and I said to her, yeah, absolutely. We'll do, no, I'm fully signed up for this four years of college. Uh, very excited for us. And to be clear, I was like, that was a, a very, you know, truthful statement at the time where that was really by intention. Anyway, that was August 2009 when I was going off to college and we wrote the first lines of code for Stripe or uh, slash dev slash payments in, uh, October of 2009, which is two months later. And so I really did nice. intend to, um, to stay in college. You lied to your but, mom. Uh, we, I, no, I didn't. That's the thing. It was you totally were very honest. careful to say, at the time, I told my mom the truth. I was excited to go in August. I, I really was. Uh, and so, uh, so, so that's when we, uh, we started working on Stripe. And actually, well, two, two, two points in that. One, just it's funny since you mentioned our first name slash dev slash payments. I think maybe subconsciously, maybe unconsciously at the time, I don't know. That was probably inspired by the name Slashdot. Uh, you know, Slashdot is this kind of obscure Unix reference, uh, or you know, not that obscure if, if you're into Unix. Uh, and uh, and slash dev slash payments is the same, you know, kind of joke. Uh, so uh, so there was some I don't know some lineage there. Uh, but then secondly, part of the reason I know that we started writing that code at the end of October '09 um, is it was the weekend of startup school. Oh, nine. And, yeah. um, oh my God. Uh, or, or, was like, or just after um, where John and I kind of on a lark uh, came out to it. And, um, and see, we're this is the dangers of startup story. school. You don't realize that. <laughs> exactly. Um, like John was on the straight and narrow. Exactly. Um, you know, Here was I living an honest life of a student. <laughs> Exactly. And then, and then we were chatting after startup school and, you know, we've been batting around this idea of, um, of a payments company for a while and had been discussing with others and trying to figure out how to pursue it and so on. But I kind of decided, well, I don't know, it's, it's, let's just kind of do the, the college thing. Um, but then somehow it was after startup school, we said, well, no, let's just give it a crack. We can go back to the Git history, but, uh, we, we started October writing, 11th. writing the, the clip. Yeah. Uh, a few John days. knows yeah. the date. Do you remember who I, spoke at startup school? I was yeah. thinking who spoke that year. I'd have to look it up, but I, I, I think you remember Chesky did. But we funded Chesky. There's no way he could have really? spoke no? because we okay, funded maybe. them for winter 2009. And by the way, Chesky was at startup mm. school 2008. 
because that's what inspired him. Oh, okay. To, like, okay. Well, then, then, I, then, I, then I'm misremembering. But yeah, yeah if you go back and look at <laughs> this book, it's hard school, uh, October 09. Okay. Oh gosh, that is so funny. By the way, just put a pin in this. I'm going to be asking you a question about your mother. And then I'm also going to be bringing up a story that I have printed out here. Oh, yeah. 2012 Startup Mark School. Mark Zuckerberg spoke that I was going to read. Startup School 2009. Who? Mark Zuckerberg spoke. I just. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? Oh, there was, I remember there was a big crowd that around. That might him. have been. I think that oh. was the first time he spoke. I think it was at Kresge Auditorium. And he got in trouble for saying something like, Oh, I only want to hire young people at Facebook. <laughs> mm, that seems like oh, I remember that controversy. Um, well, it was. Do you remember that? A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you guys yes. had a great. Um, you had Greg McAdoo. You had Jason Fried. You had uh, Tony Shea. Uh, you had Biz Stone and Evan Williams and Mark Pincus. Wow. Huh? That's quite oh. a lineup. Yeah. Oh, that's a good yeah. one. That is quite a. You can lineup. see why someone would have been motivated Pincus. to start a startup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so let's try for the third time slash dev slash payments <laughs> origins. So you did the, the line of code, but were you like thinking, hey, let's solve this problem because we know there's a huge opportunity out there? Or were you like, we think we want to start a startup? What was going on through your head? Well, one of the really, I mean, we kind of described the, the app store sort of inspiration. The other line of thinking that went into it was EC2, Amazon EC2 launched maybe it was 07, um, thereabouts. But actually EC2 was, was really clunky in the beginning. And I don't know, I, I didn't find it that captivating. The service that did launch around then was one called uh, Slicehost, which was another of the really early kind of virtualized hosting providers. And part of what was interesting about Slicehost was, you know, before there was this dichotomy in web hosting, you could either have your own like physical servers uh, and manage them and you know deal with the hard drive failures in them and the you know, UPS issues and all the rest. I remember literally racking servers for Automatic, uh, which is, you know, I feel like I'm describing walking uphill to school both ways, but you know, this, this is only 2007. <laughs> yeah. I, I, in fact, I remember the data center, whatever, some aspect of the power supply failing and I didn't have a car. And so my girlfriend of the time driving me there at like 2 a.m. to fix it. Uh, no. So, um, so you know, that happened. And then Slicehost launched not that long later. And um, I remember using it for the first time, um, oh, wait, something around then. And, um, and so, hey, it, well, as I was describing, you, you had the, the dichotomy, the, the, the dedicated servers, and then you, you could have shared web hosts uh, where basically you get like a folder on this shared server, but you you had very limited control over it. Uh, and so, you know, if you wanted to use some different programming language or database or, you know, whatever, you basically couldn't. You were kind of limited to the software that came installed on that server, um, you know, from uh, from the provider. Uh, and so Slicehost and EC2 and, you know, these new kind of virtualized hosting providers basically provide the best of both worlds, where you could set it up instantly. They would deal with all the hardware and you know the 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 sort of um, arcana and you know logistics around that but you had complete control over the server and you could install whatever software you wanted um, and you know really sort of treat it as your own mm-hmm. and I remember when I first used slicehost it was just so obviously the right answer and you know I wasn't thinking in terms of you know IT transformation and you know market tams and all this stuff but it was just like viscerally apparent that 
this is going to be the future. And sure enough, cloud computing has been, you know, one of the most important structural transformations uh, in technology over the last you know, 15 years. And so in payments, you actually kind of had the same um, sort of bimodal split where you could get a merchant account. This is like your dedicated server where yeah. you go yeah. to the bank and you fill out the paperwork and it's in Latin and you wait for approval and, you know, all this sort of really high overhead stuff. But at the end, you do get a lot of control and, uh, and kind of a, a first-class experience from a customer's vantage point. Or you could go to a shared web host, so to speak, and uh, maybe that's PayPal or Google Checkout or you know, some of these providers like that that exist at the, at the time. Uh, and you had very little control. Usually it involved you know, bringing your customers to some other website and maybe it was difficult to do recurring payments or to store the credential on file or you know, whatever, but, but it was at least easy to set up. And so the kind of the, the idea or the, the way we sort of framed it to each other was, um, what if we did slice host, but for payments, uh, mm. trying to, uh, trying to kind of, you know, bridge this, this binary and the first product that we launched and kind of, we can get into how we got to launch and, you know, the two years it took and so on. But the first product that we launched was sort of, um, was a really low level API. So in that sense, you had complete control, but that you could set up instantly. And, uh, and actually the, uh, the, the, the kind of URL from, for the Stripe control panel, uh, was manage.stripe.com, uh, when we launched, uh, and the, the service is in fact still called manage. And the reason it's called manage is because Slicehost's control panel <laughs> lived at manage.slicehost.com. And we were, oh, wow. we were just really thinking in terms of <laughs> Slicehost, yeah. but for money. Oh my God. So just quickly, this is a dumb question. I'm so sorry, but were you the first API company? Twilio, I think, preceded us. Um, but, but, okay. So I think, but, but, but they're definitely, yeah, as, as Patrick said, Twilio, I think, was around earlier and they did a lot of, um, they kind of figured out a lot of stuff. But there was really no playbook for API companies at the time. And so we did have to figure out okay. a bunch of stuff from first principles. And, you know, I sometimes joke that I think founders learn too many lessons uh, about, you know, figuring things out from first principles because they have to do it in the early days. And, you know, they get the reward of it works. And so they like go figure out, you know, sales from first principles. Like, no, no, that's an extremely well understood domain. You can actually just use a lot of the industry best practices there. But uh, certainly with building and kind of distributing an API product and, you know, how you do API versioning and like what a great API product is and stuff like that, there was no model to, to crib from. And I think the idea of building a product for, I mean, I think there's two things wrapped up in Stripe. One is building sort of an API-centric product. There's also having startups as a core constituency. And I think AWS was the first company to you know, do that really successfully. But back in 2009, you know, AWS was not viewed as you know, that successful. I mean, no. I think people thought it was cool and you know, had some new traction, but you know, it wasn't viewed as this incredibly disruptive business model. And so I think the, like one of the, there, there were many knocks that were kind of legitimate or at least ostensibly legitimate knocks on Stripe in the early days. And one of them, of course, was, well, you're serving all these tiny customers and companies. And, you know, as a descriptive matter at the time, that was really true. And there was sort of this open question as to, well, you know, how far could one scale with that? What degree would one, you know, capture their eventual expansion? But like Stripe, in addition to being a bet on many other things, was kind of a venture bet on, well, we think this portfolio of customers yeah. is going to grow a lot. And 
I mean, obviously in hindsight, that looks obvious, but if you looked at our customer roster in, you know, in, in 2010 or 2011, you'd be like, well, I've never heard of any of these things. Uh, and uh, like Dr. Chrono what? Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, a, a bunch of companies like this. A lot of YC companies, right? Oh, for sure, right? tons. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you actually a funny... Um, yeah. Can I just... I Tell well, me a just funny a, story. A, about this phenomenon. Okay. So in our Series A pitch... Uh, you know, when we went to do our Series A, we had a we were in private beta at the time, and uh, we had a handful of startups on the platform who really liked it. And I remember there was this slide in our uh, Series A pitch that now really kind of stands out to me, where we were talking about, and you know, obviously Amazon will never use Stripe, but there's just a lot of startups out there and, you know, they'll grow up on the platform and things like that. Uh, and the, and we really genuinely believed yeah. that at the time that, you know, th- there was kind of a clear ceiling to where Stripe would be useful, but there's lots of startups and they'll be more successful than you think. And obviously that's funny because now we have, we started working with Amazon in 2017. I want to say we've had a really successful kind of partnership for, for half a decade with them at this stage. And they're kind of increasingly using Stripe for more and more of their expansion and all these other enterprises who are, you know, as they go, River Island in the UK, you know, all these kind of uh, more um, very well-established old school uh, companies uh, uh, leading on Stripe for stuff. But in the early days, kind of the thesis really was startups. And then we were surprised on the upside that there were lots of other, I think this is what lots of, you know, companies do is that they start with kind of some nuggets of, uh, you know, they just get a handhold on the ledge. And then they expand from there. But mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no rewriting of history possible here. Because again, it was literally in the Series A deck where we were like, oh, and you know, all these big enterprises will not use Stripe. But there's lots of startups out there. That was our belief <laughs> at the time. I love that you explicitly yeah. said Amazon won't use us, but all these little ones will. I'm realizing there's another company that we should give credit here uh, oh. to here. And that's Heroku. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. They, they, were, they were a real um, API platform. I think they were the company. first. Exactly. I think they were certainly the first YC API company that I'm aware of. And okay. they really took developer aesthetics they were very, very seriously, like very seriously. Uh, and those those guys were, were a real inspiration. So Heroku YC funded in winter 08. And I should interview them because they were they did a yeah, lot yeah. of they're, they're, they're really things. special. Uh, but I and- need to say, so I'm jumping all around, but I have to say, so PG was telling me that Stripe's documentation is a thing of beauty and that Stripe really was always developed for programmers. So it appeals to the people within companies who are writing software, not a CTO who needs to check off the boxes. And he said, ask them, you know, like a good API is well-designed, reliable, and well-documented. And Stripe is very famous for being fabulously documented. Did you do this to set yourselves apart or were you building something that you yourself knew you'd want? Or both? I think this is one of these things that has proven very important for the company that was, I don't know, in the early days, Patrick, would you call it like an aesthetic matter or just an intuitive uh, kind of strategic decision where, uh, I mean, we call the company slash dev slash payments. And so we, you know, built by developers for developers. I think we even played with kind of some version of. That, that, that was on the, that was on our first. Time exactly. Sure. So we just kind of decided <laughs> that we were going to, uh, going to go with this. But I think it, we again landed on a deeper point, which is the entire world is bottlenecked on software development ability 
and capacity. Like, you know, when you go try and subscribe to, a, I actually went and tried to read something on the Irish Times and it says you have to log in and, you know, you try to log in. It says subscription not active. And you're like, okay, how do I fix this? And it's just like a complete dead end. And you're presumably somewhere, some, uh, someone somewhere in the organization has thought about fixing this, but it's a big project and we'd have to redo the systems and it'd take two years or whatever. And so it's not the idea of, oh, we should make it easier for people to subscribe. It's the fact that you can't reliably turn ideas into software well um, uh, as organizations of any size. In a startup, it really matters, but in a large company as well. Often there'll be an idea for, we know we should fix the subscription flow so that people stop dropping off, but it'll be two years to go and implement it. And so (laughs) kind of Mm. pace of software development really matters. And yet, then you might say, well, then of course, you know, the payment companies for whom this is very strategic, they all take the API really seriously, right? And they all care about developer ergonomics. And the state of the art at the time before Stripe was like, oh, no, absolutely not. Some business person would make a decision based on, you know, a PowerPoint presentation, and then they would, you know, make the decision. And then afterwards, they would drop the 500-page PDF, uh, you know, literally at the time, in the case of the PayPal documentation, onto the developer's desk and be like, here, you, go implement this. But you're kind of ignoring as a factor in the decision how good or bad are the APIs, you know, how fast will we actually be able to implement this? And so, again, this was, I think, an intuitive thing for us at the time, but realizing that developer productivity, developer ergonomics really matter as kind of a matter of business strategy for all these companies. Yeah, I think I think we, yeah. we we had this empathetic intuition that we wanted people like us to have a less miserable time, you know, implementing and managing and maintaining that's a, that's a great way to put it. systems. But as John says, the the thing that has turned out to be true that we were kind of oblivious to is that for such a large fraction of companies in the world, their ability to wrangle and manage and manipulate software is becoming the fulcrum upon which their own future hinges. Uh, And so this question of how enabled developers are is not just this parochial concern of early stage startups or something, but actually this kind of foundational imperative for a very large fraction of the entire economy. Yeah. But you guys were ahead of the curve back then doing all of this. Don't you agree? I think, I mean, I think we were, but I would attribute a lot of it to to basically to luck. I, I mean, we, I think the fact that we did a good job of uh, of making it developer friendly and so on, you know, is downstream of the people we hired and, you know, our own sensibilities. And, you know, even being really into Lisp and small talk, you know, that's that's this kind of orientation towards developer aesthetics. Like, you know, it was it was there for a long time. Um, so, so kind of, I, I think we deserve, you know, some kind of, or, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to denigrate the efforts of people at Stripe early on by saying that that was just luck. But the fact that we chose this problem and this orientation in the first place, I think that that like worked out so well, you know, that part was kind of luck. Okay. So I've met your mom and I know what an amazing and determined woman she is. And I'm curious if you would be open to telling the story of her level of determination with your brother when he was really little, because I find that sort of fascinating. And if not, that's okay. But if you want to just take a leap of faith and say your mother is an incredibly determined person, did you learn that from her? Was she an example or is it in your DNA or what lessons did you learn from her that could be applied to being startup founders? Because this just goes without saying, and I think Carolyn, we shouldn't just assume the world knows this about the Stripe founders, but like you two are like the two most formidable founders I've ever met in my life. 
Like I would never bet against you, put it that way, ever. So where where did you learn this from? So the kind of Tara mom is, the family is uh, three brothers, uh, uh, Patrick, myself, and uh, Tommy, the youngest uh, brother, um, who's uh, all of us are out here in uh, in San Francisco. And Tommy was diagnosed with uh, cerebral palsy as a uh, young kid. And the healthcare system at the time in Ireland, and kind of, you know, even now to some degree, uh, you're you're a little bit left on your own in terms. I think everyone has had this experience with a condition where you know <laughs> the healthcare system is good at treating broken legs, but kind of an ongoing lifelong thing or something that's hard to diagnose and thing. You're really left kind of on your own, and you're in charge of uh, uh, you know figuring it out yourself. And so, uh, Tommy had cerebral palsy. And uh, our mom was trying to figure out, okay, like, what do I do? You know, I'm told he's never going to walk as an adult, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so she just... Yeah, and then, like, I think maybe just to, to really set the kind of initial scene, um, you know, you're, you're saying nice things about, you know, us being resourceful. You know, there's, um, there's this phenomenon of, like, regression to the mean in, uh, in genetics. And I think John and I are, by comparison to our, to our mom, you know, 60% as, uh, as resourceful as she is, uh, we, we, we really pale by comparison. So when Tommy was born, and I think she still has this letter somewhere, you know, she was t- told that, uh, that this son of hers, um, uh, Ben, kind of a couple months age, would you know, certainly never walk. And she would be lucky if he had kind of any reasonable quality of wow. life at all. And she just had this kid. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's the hand you've been dealt. But of course, she, by her personality and nature, was sort of unwilling to and incapable of just accepting this at face value. Uh, and, so. uh, and just for clarity, you know, Tommy has since gone on to a very successful career in tech and he, uh, uh, you know, he and I were biking the other weekend. And so all of the things that, you know, managed to prove all the doctors wrong. So basically, despite the fact that both our parents were running their own businesses at the time, she also took on the job of, you know, becoming a physiotherapist and, you know, becoming an expert on this stuff. She ended up getting a master's in cerebral palsy. She ended up writing two books. She discovered the best clinic for treating this was uh, in Budapest. And so in 1994, like not was, long, uh, not you know, exactly not the wall fell. After, yeah, exactly. After, uh, you know, uh, Hungary used to be a communist country. We yeah. just moved to Hungary for a while. Uh, so the Tommy could get treated uh, at this. And it was very kind of, it was, it was very, um, it was very Soviet. Uh, it was like, well, you know, if, um, if you have some, you know, uh, something is stymieing your ability to walk, well, I just got to try harder uh, and, uh, and, you know, walk harder. And it turns out that for cerebral palsy in a significant fraction of cases, that's actually like a pretty good strategy. And that sort of with sufficient determination and effort, uh, you can really get a long way. But but this is lit a um, fuse uh, for for a mom where yeah she she wrote a book that was sort of the parents manual for like okay you have a kid with cerebral palsy which is again you know the the uh, the most common birth defect uh, really and uh, you have a kid with cerebral palsy what do you do and previously like there was nothing between academic journal articles and WebMD like there was nothing in the space in between those <laughs> and so this is kind of a Oh God! This is her dedicated web hosting. Exactly. Shared web wow. This is a technical guide uh, to parents. Right. It's there's there's only it, medical. Exactly. And, and then I got lunch with her last week, and she was uh, coming from work and going back to work. Uh, she's uh, not successfully retired yet, where she's still doing a bunch of stuff. She's kind of publishing more books, uh. and she's um, uh, doing a bunch of cool stuff with the healthcare system in Ireland, where uh, you know they're rolling out kind of better CP care. So anyway, just a lot a lot of determination over a long time period, as you can tell. That's a great yeah. story. Yeah. And, and, and so to your question, yes, uh, I think that um, 
starting a company and all the rest is is not easy. And, and as John mentioned, both of our parents did start companies, and so you know that certainly set some kind of baseline of 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 normalcy for us or something where we and maybe why they were so supportive because they had done it themselves. Yeah. I I I think that must've been part of it. Yeah. But sort of growing up, um, you know, everything you grew up around seems pretty normal to you for the most part. Uh, And so, you know, mom had been, you know, prosecuting that agenda sort of throughout Mm -hmm. our childhood um, uh, meant that. Yeah. I think you also pick up the subtle influences. And for example, you're talking um, about the, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, the, the social network and the uh, influence of uh, it on people starting startups. And, you know, there's maybe kind of a sheen on the startups today where they're, you know, uh, uh, seen as like this kind of shiny thing out of which you get uh, some status and, you know, a good LinkedIn endorsement and everything. Whereas um, I, I think for us, it was probably helpful, you know, as I look back on it now, just seeing the work ethic of uh like everything they were doing and the the young glamorous work ethic where you kind of get a sense of the the one foot after another aspect of it yeah our dad ran a small little lakeside hotel for most of our childhood and you know running a hotel like the hotel is kind of never shut you have customers there 24 7 yeah Unlike most businesses. Yeah. Exactly. Like your server going down. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so yes, in the, the idea of having to ensure kind of complete continuity in service uh, and, uh, and knowing what it takes to get that is also something that we grew up around. And, and again, just seemed normal to us. Yeah. Paul actually told me, so John, as you know, he just visited you recently in Ireland and he came back and he, he said, John sounded really excited and energetic about running a big company. I'm so impressed with him. I'm just curious. I, I mean, I know you definitely have the profile to be startup founders, but like running a big company, like, John, do you like managing people? Because isn't that what so much of it is at a company your size? Yeah, but, but, Paul did have a very funny reaction where he was like, he said something like, well, so you actually like business or something. Um, <laughs> where <laughs> I think for Paul, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's much more of the, uh, the hacker uh, mindset. I think we get excited by building the Stripe product. And you just can't do that at a certain point with, you know, five people. And so even if kind of aesthetically, we might prefer that cabin in the woods kind of style of working, which I don't think we do, but even if we did, you just can't do a big global product that has tons of impact in that model. And I think Pat and I actually find it fun. Uh, Again, I think just we're I don't know. How would you characterize it, Patrick? I really like um, and have taken a lot of inspiration from Alan Kay and you know, obviously the small talk thing and the gooey and all this stuff. Um, but I also think a lot about the fact that the stuff they made at Park, you know, was not directly uh, taken into and made a big success in the world. It required Sun through kind of Java as, you know, Maybe getting object-oriented programming into the world, uh, and an Apple for the and Microsoft for the the, the, the GUI and, and so forth, and and so I've always like one could with only five people or the cabin in the woods or whatever one could sketch out the kind of infrastructure that we think ought to exist for the internet and paint a vision, but 
actually making it happen, to John's point, is intrinsically the task of a large, collaborative, complicated, and intertwined group of people. And, you know, making it happen seems to me to actually be the um, harder challenge in the world. Uh, like, if you, if you took a thousand people and asked them to kind of roughly design what some of this, you know, in our case, internet infrastructure should look like, lots of other versions of this in other domains, I think lots of people can, can do a pretty good version of painting that vision. Uh, but, but I think, yeah, that this sort of scarce thing in the world uh, is sort of navigating the maze of, of, how to, of how to make that happen. And, you know, Elon, not to remotely imply a parallel between us and him, but just kind of talking about this phenomenon in another domain, lots of people thought that electric cars are important and inevitable. Lots of people had that vision, but only Elon, you know, uh, for, for many, many years, uh, somehow had the capacity to actually realize it. And so, I mean, I think John actually both do find tremendous interest in business itself. You know, every business is a kind of um, education in a sector uh, and you know, a, a, um, a fissure of the economy that you probably don't know a whole lot about and so on. So, you know, it is interesting, but it's less that I would say the, the way I kind of characterize the, the, the dynamic you're describing, it's not so much that we're interested in business per se, but I'm really interested in the question of, well, how do you translate the vision into reality? Um, mm. That seems like one of the most important uh, and sort of um, and scarce and most poorly understood phenomena in the world. And, uh, and I still feel like I'm learning a lot about how to do that well. Uh, and uh, and that's, that to me is an interesting problem. And it energizes you. Yeah, both. for sure. Like, I, I think, yeah, I, I, mean, I, know, I guess everyone's journey here is idiosyncratic and personal, but you know, John and I, you know, have this discussion every couple of years or something. And I think we feel maybe if anything more energized about Stripe now than six years ago or seven years ago, because like, I mean, I'm kind of arbitrarily choosing that, but you know, during the super intense scaling periods, you're, you're a bit like, you know, a cat that's been dumped in a pail of water where you're just, you know, happy to still be standing. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and it's, I mean, you're obviously pleased on some level that things are going well, but it's not day-to-day -day fun. Like I remember, you know, the, the tremors of our servers uh, as they creaked uh, beneath, uh, beneath the load and, you know, we were understaffed to address that and, you know, all these things. Whereas now I feel like we have, like we can actually kind of take a step back and they go, well, you know, where should we be? Which problems do we want to invest in or pursue or whatever? And there's, there's actually sort of some degree of, of um, you know, we, we, we can exercise volitional choice in where Stripe goes rather than just kind of, you know, hanging on on the cliff edge and, you know, hoping we don't fall off. Yeah. 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 Oh, I got to let Carolyn ask a question, but I also want to know, do you guys ever argue, you know, each other inside and out, but do you guys I mean, argue? We ever? debate a lot of important questions, but I actually think we do a reasonable job of like, we don't argue or bicker or, um, and we also try to not expose, like, I think it'd be very bad for the company if, you know, people can go to one of us and get a different answer than the other. And so we try to, um, also be pretty consistent yeah. uh, in how we run the place. But I mean, there's definitely issues that we debate, um, but I don't think we do a lot of arguing. Well, I don't, I don't think we've argued yeah. since the start. I, I can't think of one. I was just thinking to myself, you know, one of the, one of the things that I thought was a couple of people mentioned to me from the Paul Graham interview was like RTM saying, don't let YC be the last cool thing you do. Do you two ever have this like, let's not have Stripe be the last cool thing we do. Do you have those moments where you're kind of thinking like what happens in the next decade? I think with Stripe, we have a 
very open-ended time horizon. Like we would be delighted to be running Stripe in 20 years time. Uh, and I think we will be. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think we view it as the, you know, absolute soul thing that we will do. And like for Patrick, you should tell them about um, Arc or kind of mention that as an example, because, and I think just, yes, it's, it's like That's a, it's almost like a stylistic thing for people where in some cases people go sequentially uh, through kind of the endeavors in their life where I think in, in our case, you know, we have uh, a few things running in parallel. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't want Stripe's payments functionality to be the last cool thing that Stripe does. Um, but I look at it more kind of as within Stripe rather than kind of Stripe itself, where it's like Stripe is going to keep doing, you know, all these awesome things and things that, you know, were not even on our minds uh, when we sort of first ventured forth. Uh, and uh, and I think, you know, Stripe is building tooling for the global economy, you know, so I, I don't think we're going to run out of, uh, of, of neat things right. that we could do there. And then to kind of John's second point, yeah, a, a thing that we um, that we launched Gosh, uh, I guess uh, almost two years ago um, is uh, is a biomedical research institute called ARC, and uh, <clears throat> anyone can read more about that at arcinstitute.org. With your lovely wife Silvana, exactly, and with one of her colleagues, uh, a guy named Patrick Sue. And the basic idea of ARC is biology has changed a lot over the last kind of fifty years. And the kind of environment that is likely to be most propitious for and most um, effectively enabling um, uh, of breakthrough basic science looks quite different to um, to or may look quite different to how things you know have been structured, uh, say uh, you know, since World War II. And so it's this kind of institutional structural experiment uh, around. You know, is there a better way to enable this 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 breakthrough basic science? It's a nonprofit, unlike Stripe, not a startup. Um, but we're but we're really excited about it. And you know, we've no specific plans, but you know, maybe maybe there'll be other you know arcs in the broadest sense. You know, down the road as well. So it sounds like the answer is you're going to do lots of cool things in parallel and within Stripe. So it's a different kind of answer than PG's answer to that. Yeah, I think maybe. I mean, there's probably a difference between like investing entities and like companies something because like i mean back to pg's conversation with john you know i'm sure there there's an infinite number of uh, of phenomenal things that yc could do but you know maybe some of them would require hiring you know a thousand people we'll see how paul's uh, you know desire to do that uh, or your collective desire to do that uh, gary's desire to do that now patrick right um (laughs) when you say um uh uh, it's a nonprofit unlike Stripe. I'm reminded of the time where, you know, Mike Moritz has been on our board since, uh, uh, since the, um, 2011 investment, I guess, and been very helpful throughout the years. But, you know, he also is a, I think he kind of is the kind of board member who, uh, pushes in a useful way. And there was one board meeting where after, uh, this is in the early days, after a particularly, um, unimpressive performance, uh, in the quarter, you know, he <laughs> steps into the room and he says, um, mm, yes, the stripe.org board meeting. <laughs> <laughs> stripe.org. Again, savage. <laughs> oh, that's so hard. It's just subtle dig. Oh my gosh. Oh man. Well, I realize we better wrap things up because I know you guys have to get back to your day jobs. And I'm sitting here thinking I speaking so of Marissa, business to be done. There's business to be done. And someday we'll have you back on so we can ask the other Great. questions. But I loved catching up with you guys. I had so much fun. 
Thank you for taking the time to do this. I can't even begin to tell you how proud I am of you guys. You know, at this point, if we met in 2005, we've known each other for almost 20 years. Wow. Can you believe it? Huh. Yeah. That, yeah. Okay, that's pretty amazing. I, had, I, I hadn't know. thought about it in those terms. And then maybe just the, to just state, you know, the kind of maybe implicit um, corollary of that, uh, you know, sort of through all these different things we've done, you know, YC and you guys have been you know, very deeply interwoven and, uh, and, you know, we're extremely grateful and I don't think Stripe would have happened and, you know, a lot of other parts of our lives uh, wouldn't have happened without it. That's nice. Well, thank you. Thank you. So great to see you guys. Thanks for coming on our show. Um, we will hopefully catch up with you soon, hopefully in see California. You. See you. Thanks, see you. you guys. Great to see you. Okay. Thanks, Bye. guys. Bye. Carolyn, that was so fabulous. We, Yeah, it was another one where we just kind of laughed a lot because they're really funny. And uh, they and were really they fun. were getting me laughing before we even started. Exactly. I forget what they were saying, but they were making me. Well, they're so funny. Kicking off with the eyebrows. I mean, that was that was that set the tone. The eyebrows. <laughs> oh, Paul's going to be so bummed when people know about the eyebrow story. But I'm sure there are 50 other people who have like a similar eyebrow story. Mm. You know, not the eyebrows, but some other observation, like, physical yes. observation. Your that head is Paul too large. Says. And I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Notice how large your head is compared to your neck or something like yeah. that. Oh, my God. Um, Carolyn, did you love the small talk? Uh, yeah, I that's where I was really. You. That was another. Re- I was really going to laugh pretty hard about that because now small talk is just inherently funny uh, to me all the time. I don't even know what it is. And it's just funny. I know the Trevor Vigilante, yes, yes. The, the small talk. Um, Rewriting the via website. You know, the other thing I was thinking about, because Patrick mentioned his bike a couple times. I think they both mentioned bicycles. And do you remember when Patrick rode his- Patrick's a huge bicyclist. Okay, well, he rode his bike to my house. And I actually think that was the summer. We were talking about the summer- From San Francisco? No, from Mountain View. And so you were there. So (gasps) John had a barbecue, and I'm pretty sure it was for summer nine, summer 09 batch. So there was a barbecue, and we live in the East Bay, and it's like, the day was like a 95-degree summer day. and Patrick shows up like hours after the barbecue had ended <laughs> because he, he he shows up at our house and like even more, it's just hilly here and but but he shows up he goes oh yeah um I timed it but Google didn't really explicitly tell me about the elevation and he's like there was a lot of hills and we're like oh my god there are so many hills and it's ninety five degrees out so I'm pretty sure we just had him go oh in the god. pool um and then John drove him home. After we like we fed him, it took that's incredible. It took him over three hours to bicycle from Mountain View to the East Bay, and I I would think it might have taken him three hours to drive <laughs> if there was bad traffic. No, you know? well, that's, a, that's a dig at the East Bay. <laughs> no, it's not. That I bad. know Sorry. it's not that bad. No. So anyway, so I just kept thinking. I'm just picturing Patrick arriving at our house on this really hot summer day after cycling here from Mountain View and being like, "Oh my god." And missing the and totally party, missing the, party. Missing yeah, the which dinner. Which was no big deal, but um, anyway, it was, it was. Oh my gosh. Fun and memory. I didn't get to read. I have so many questions still from the, one of the big things I didn't get to ask them was how they were able to convince banks oh, and yeah. credit card company, yeah. you know, think, you know, financial institutions to work with them when they're like 22 years yeah. old. And I have this email that I pulled up from the 2012 startup school, I was giving a talk that uh-huh. year and it says, I said, 
Any stories about how hard it was for you doing deals with these big banks, trying to come up with a good example of relentlessly resourceful, and I can't help but think of you guys. Yeah. And they said, uh, yeah, a few jumped to mind, going to meet the CEO of American Express at their global headquarters in order to convince them to work with us. And basically the story, what I was like, you you actually convinced the CEO of American Express to work with you? Question mark, question mark. Uh-huh. And I even say, I know I'm Ron Conway right now with all my exclamation <laughs> points. And then he said, yeah, basically their MO was to have a conference call first so that the people wouldn't know how young they oh. were and they'd be impressed by the product. Yeah, yeah. And, and they basically told American Express, um, there should be twice as many transactions happening with American Express than there are now. So we're not, we're just expanding the market for you if you were to work yeah, with us yeah. and that resonated sure. and they met them in person but that was their mo to always have a call with the people That's before they actually met really with them smart. so they wouldn't judge yeah, them so they have no preconceived notions yeah they don't judge them right off the bat uh yeah that exactly that interesting to talk Ugh, but i <laughs> always and i wanted to ask them like they basically like pulled themselves out of you know County Tipperary in Ireland, rural, mm. you know, into this this world of startups. You know, they did that on their own. Like, how did they do that? What advice would they have for other 15-year-olds did, who want to do that? Did John ever finish uh, Harvard? Did he drop out? I think he dropped okay. out. I think they both dropped out. I mean, we were out. laughing about how, like, that tiny little window between, like, yeah, mom, I'm going to be totally into it, and then, like, starting to write the code for Stripe. But I actually... I don't think we ever closed the loop on that. Like, did he just make it? Like, did he do both for a while and graduate? Did he finish? We could probably check on LinkedIn. Now I don't know. (laughs) I think I'll have to check, but I think he might have dropped out. Oh, gosh, I hope I'm right. But I don't know. I just love the conversation because they're just so energetic. They're so smart, so thoughtful. And by the way, they are doing so many other projects that are cool. Like this I whole arc, arc thing, and then I they had the I forgot, and so yeah. Do you remember the grant, the fast grants that they did during COVID? I do remember where that. they basically yeah. gave immediate grants for people who are coming up with ideas. I mean, they're just always doing things. Yeah. Where they get this energy, I don't know, but I want to bottle they get it up it and because use it they're for young, Jessica. <laughs> they have the energy because they're in their early thirties. <laughs> <laughs> And they don't have kids. Uh, meanwhile, right now I got to go because I have to take my older son to McDonald's. I promised him. I'm like, after the podcast, I'll take you to McDonald's. Always nagging me. Mm. I said, what? can't you DoorDash it? In England? I thought you could. They don't have that. They don't have not where in the, I am. Not in the boonies. They don't no. have it in, are you kidding me? Well, for some reason, I thought, not in the I boonies. thought that when we were talking to Tony, it must have been you were talking exclusively about Palo Alto and not at all about the UK. About your particular little corner of the UK. Oh, okay. correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And when we come back to Palo Alto, it'll be a. We get, you know, the DoorDash account gets shut down for fraud <laughs> because he uses it so much. But, yeah. You know, it's insane. So much junk yeah. food to eat. All right. Well, not enough time. Definitely take your um, kid to go well, get some uh, That was awesome. Yeah, that was great. That was great. It's great to catch up with them. <laughs> It was great to catch up with them, and they just, again, they always instill me with a lot of energy and make me feel like I could go out and run a marathon. I love it. I agree. I agree. (laughs) 
All right. Well, I will catch you on the next one. Sounds great. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye.